A lot of you, I know, look forward to the comedy intro that begins this show on many days. We're sort of like the Hulk, though. You wouldn't want to meet our comedy when we're angry. Uh, and we're angry now. Uh, so the problem with the comedy intros is that I have to write them and then Kion Wolf has to perform and produce them. And we're both so angry about what happened over the weekend. We just kind of don't have it in us. Uh, we're going to spend today, we do have a lot of other things in us, and we're going to spend today getting those out of our system and analyzing what did happen over the weekend. Uh, we hope to talk to U.S. Senator Chris Murphy in just a few minutes. A little bit later, Phil Rucker, uh, one of the journalists from the Washington Post who appears on this show occasionally, will talk about some of the things not specifically related to the Muslim ban, but um, things in the Trump administration tend to happen all at once. Uh, so he'll be talking about the long telephone call with Vladimir Putin, uh, about the rise of uh, Steve Bannon onto the National Security Council, and maybe a few other things. Towards the end of the show, um, a lot of this ban specifically affects refugees. We're going to talk to Chris George, kind of the go-to guy in the state of Connecticut, executive director of what's called IRIS, Integrated Re Refugee and Immigrant Services. And we'll also talk uh, to someone who is affected uh, by this ban, someone who's um, relatives whose wife and newborn are, I think, in Iran right now, um, so and, and who may or may not be able to get back. Well, uh, you'll try to give you the human face of this. Right now, we want to sort of get down to the specifics. I'm keeping an eye up there on the screen in case Senator Murphy uh, calls in. We're going to get right down to the specifics uh, of um, of the problem they're trying to address, or that they claim to be trying to uh, address. And our guest to do that is Charles Kurzman, professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's the author of several books, uh, including most recently, The Missing Martyrs, Why There Are So Few Muslim Terrorists. Uh, we will get to him in just a second, but it looks like we are uh, almost ready. Oops, uh, not quite ready to uh, talk to U.S. Senator uh, Chris Murphy. What we're going to do um, is talk to Senator Murphy first. His time is limited. He's going to talk a little bit about possibly possible legislative responses to this. Then we're going to come back to Professor Kurzman, talk a little bit about the reality, uh, ways in which the Muslim ban, as initiated over the weekend, doesn't even address the problem it purports to address. But joining us right now is U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. Uh, thanks for taking some time for us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. So uh, the first thing to say about what happened over the weekend is, I mean, typically, if you were the president, and let's say we actually thought this was a good idea, um, and, and if we were president, we would probably want to run it through a few people in, at the Department of Justice to see how it with, would withstand a court challenge, look at how it tracks with existing law, maybe test the waters a little bit on Capitol Hill with at least Republican leadership in both, uh, both chambers to see how that would go. As far as you can tell, did anything like that happen? None of that happened, and, and, and quite to the contrary, to the extent that the Department of Homeland Security got any heads up, what we know is that they advised Trump and his advisors that they could not exclude green card holders, legal permanent residents from the United States, and it looks as if Steve Bannon, you know, formerly the editor of Breitbart.com, overruled um, administration officials, and in the at the outset, uh, issued an order that excluded green card holders. They have seemingly walked that back. Uh, but, you know, this is an administration that is playing by the seat of their pants every single day. They take 24 hours to set up a meeting with the Mexican president, and then Donald Trump tweets out something that causes that meeting to suddenly be canceled. I think this is the, the new normal. And for all of these you know, cabinet officials who came before Congress and told us that they were going to speak truth to power when they disagreed with uh, President Trump, it seems as if they're sort of ordering things such that the cabinet officials can't even make their case that they get 
told these executive orders are essentially fait accompli's. And, you know, that's that that's not how the administration should work or ever has in the past. Right. So um, one of the other things you might want to do, and you're alluding to this, is talk to the people who are, would actually be involved in the immediate uh, enforcement uh, of a ban like this one and, and find out what would happen, for example, with planes that were in the air that contained people to whom the ban might apply if they'd left one country and were headed towards the shores of the U.S. It seems as though it, it wasn't so much that the ban directly affected those people as that nobody had really thought through that question, that that the whole notion of what would happen if somebody, you know, left Egypt and was headed here and, and had originated in Iran or something like that, that, that nobody even really had much of an idea of what to do with those people. Yeah, I think that's what happens when you have, you know, Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon and Michael Flynn making these decisions by themselves. Uh, you know, we we theorized what would happen uh, when you have a president who has never served in government, surrounded by a bunch of advisors who have also never served in government. And, you know, a lot of people cheered that because, you know, well, you know, the outsiders are taking over. Well, you know, there are some pretty important mechanics in government that you have to get right. And if you don't, you know, people's lives get ruined. And, and that's what's essentially happened here. And it suggests that it's going to happen over and over and over again because Donald Trump this morning doesn't seem contrite about any of this disaster. He seems to be digging in. The um, there's so much to ask you, but I think a lot of people are wondering. Well, at what point can Congress get involved here? I mean, whether it's this or signing uh, an executive order that says that somehow or other for every new regulation affecting small business, two have to be repealed. Um, you know, some of these seem a little bit like overreach in terms of executive orders, and some of these things seem to involve existing laws, laws that have been passed by Congress, which um, the president intends to contravene. Um, when can Congress get involved, and what can Congress do? Well, Congress can involve can get involved right now, and I'm introducing you know legislation today uh, that would defund this executive order that would essentially cancel its implementation. Um, you know, but none of that can be made real without Republicans joining us. And you know, on this issue of the Muslim ban, we know that Republicans publicly disavowed it during the campaign, privately um, disavow it today. I think what's happening, Colin, is that. Um, Republicans' priority is getting their economic agenda through. They want to get this big trickle-down tax set passed, and they want to get the repeal of the Affordable Care Act passed. And until they get those two things done, they are not going to antagonize Trump on anything because they see how he can mess up their agenda or their day with just a tweet. So it looks to me, and, and this is abhorrent to me, but it looks to me like they're kind of playing nice and staying quiet until they get their tax cut done and until they get the repeal of the Affordable Care Act done. And maybe then they'll start drawing issue with this, you know, pretty massive power grab that seems to be happening and being teed up. Say a little bit more about the legislation that you're going to address, uh, introduce, excuse me. There are, there are a couple different ways to come at this. Um, you can pass a law that um, just immediately rescinds the uh, executive order. <laughs> it looks like Senator Feinstein will introduce that legislation. Or you can use the appropriations process to defund it. I think it's much more likely that we'll be able to defund this, um, the implementation of this, because we will have spending laws before Congress in the coming months. We have to keep the government running uh, at some point this spring uh, when the continuing resolution expires. So I'm introducing legislation. And I'm frankly working with Republicans right now to co-introduce it with me that would just say simply this. You cannot spend any money 
uh, on the implementation of this order. That might be the quickest way uh, to get it struck down. Um, and uh, it will be one of, I think, a couple different approaches. And, and listen, Republicans you know, did kind of come out in the woodwork on Sunday, um, more than on Friday and Saturday, and, and we're working with them to see if we can get to um, you know, a bipartisan majority. Right. It's not just McCain and Graham anymore, right? There's some other voices added to this mix. They're added to this mix, but, I mean, McCain and Graham and, and you know, Ben Sass from Nebraska, they're kind of the strongest. The other people who have come out and criticized it, their criticism has been a little lukewarm. And listen, I mean, I watched Marco Rubio, you know, eviscerate uh, Rex Tillerson in the Foreign Relations Committee. And then when the time came to cast his vote, vote for him. So I've, I'm sort of getting used to the fact that the statements on policy don't necessarily ultimately match up to the way that Republicans vote on these issues. I mean, is it not the case that there are already laws on the books saying that you can't do this, that there are already laws on the books that say you you can't orchestrate immigration policy based on, for example, someone's religion or country of origin? And, and so there's, there's a clear prohibition on discriminating um, against immigrants uh, based on religion or national origin. Not so clear as to what that policy is, that non-discrimination policy is on refugees, um, but clearly that policy applies to other, to other immigrants. Um, and then the president also has these discretionary powers um, to control immigration for national emergencies. Now, normally, those bans on discrimination are not trumped by any other discretion that's given to the president. And, and that's the case that's being made in the court. That's why I think it's likely that at least for the non-refugees, this uh, policy will be struck down. Admittedly, it's a little bit squishier on, on that population of people as to what the protections are. Um, Chris Murphy, I know your time is limited. Uh, thanks for giving some of it to us. We've been talking to U.S. Senator uh, Chris Murphy from Connecticut. All right. Thanks a lot, Colin. All right. Uh, Okay, now we're going to move on. As previously advertised, uh, we're swinging back to Professor Charles Kurzman uh, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Chapel Hill. He's joining us from UNC Chapel Hill Studios. Uh, His books include The Missing Martyrs, Why There Are So Few Muslim Terrorists. Uh, Charles Kurzman, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Colin. I want to begin uh, just with the the question of the efficacy of this uh, executive order. Uh, The order itself, the language of the order itself, uh, invokes 9-11. It then mentions seven countries um, whose whose residents are banned from immigrating here and whose refugees are are banned from coming here under the refugee program. It kind of conflates both of those two statuses, and we can talk about that. But um, you keep track of this kind of stuff. Since 9-11, how many Americans have been killed by acts of terrorism on American soil uh, by people who came here from these seven countries? Uh, that would be zero. Yeah, I maintain a database of this, uh, of uh, Muslim Americans who are involved with violent extremism. I've done this for some years. It's available on my website. Uh, and uh, there have been no fatalities uh, since 9-11 uh, by uh, conducted by extremists from these seven countries. None of the attackers on 9-11 were from these seven countries either. Um, where did this list of seven countries come from? I've read in some places that it actually that particular list of seven countries dates back to the Obama administration um, and some of their visa policies. Uh, it has to do, uh, six of the countries are sites of uh, severe civil wars where there's significant unrest, and that's where the, the list was put together. Iran was uh, added to that list because a bunch of folks in uh, Congress and in the public don't like Iran. Uh, but the seven countries uh, are not sources of a major portion of violent extremism in the United States. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, one uh, thing that has been noted by some is that if you wanted to get really specific about um, who's been doing actual physical injury or inflicting fatalities on U.S. soil, you might look at Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and United Arab Emirates, which are not on this list. The cynical people among us note that the Trump organization actually has business dealings in, in those three countries. But I mean, as somebody, once again, who looks at this, I'm assuming you probably could put together a list of some countries where at minimum, you know, close vetting makes a lot of sense based on what's happened here. What are, what are those countries? I think, uh, well, the ones you've mentioned, I would, uh, uh, there are a couple others we could add. But I think the the bigger point here is it's not a matter of banning people from these, uh, everybody from these countries, because the numbers of violent extremists in the United States are so small. Uh, the, the bigger picture here is that violent extremism has not been a leading cause of death in recent years in the United States. Uh, since 9-11, we've had 240,000 murders in the United States. Of those, 123, by my count, have been because of Muslim extremists. Are less than one percent. Uh, uh, Senator Murphy mentioned whether if the the administration has special legal uh, privileges in time of national emergency. I, I don't believe the numbers suggest that we are in a state of national emergency on this issue right now. Um, on the other hand, um, I remember during uh, the Bush administration uh, seeing the pictures out of Abu Ghraib and thinking, well, there's the recruiting poster for al-Qaeda. And I assume that these policies here and the scenarios that will unfold and the stories of Muslims seeking refuge here and being turned away and the notion that there is a policy that specifically targets Muslims, which I think it's fair to say about this policy, uh, can constitute a pretty effective recruiting poster for either al-Qaeda 2017 or ISIS or, or, or pick, pick your group. It, it seems as though, for just from a practical viewpoint, we're doing the opposite of what we need to do. Well, it can't help to make more enemies, uh, but I want to uh, avoid the suggestion that Muslims are like ready to go off, you know, with one more provocation. Uh, you, you're going to get this huge violent backlash. Uh, we thought that with Abu Ghraib. We've thought that with a number of incidents that were quite unpopular uh, in, in Muslim communities uh, around the world. Uh, but we didn't end up seeing uh, Muslims turn to violence in large numbers here in the United States. Um with all that in mind, um, well, maybe we could just talk a little bit about refugees for a second. I'm going to talk more with Chris George about this. But, um, you know, half of this or not half of it, part of this ban applies to the immigration status of people. And then another part of it applies to refugees. Refugees, the way I understand it, are, I mean, U.S. refugees or U.S. refugee policy is one of the most strict, severe, and watertight, probably the most strict, severe, and watertight policy in the world. Uh, it, it takes 12 to 18 months for these people to get in the country. Uh, they're put through uh, investigations by not just the CIA, but I think, you know, seven or eight other American agencies. There's biometric measurements done. I mean, it, once again, this seems like a very strange place to be going, given the numbers that you just cited this tiny uh, fragment of the total number of American murders uh, involving this at all, uh, the refugee population would seem to be an even less likely source of murders or harm or mayhem, and an even more likely source, once they get here, of useful intelligence about who's out there who is dangerous. Yeah, the, the uh, refugees, there have been exceedingly few refugees involved with any kind of violent extremism. 
the fact is we have uh, extreme vetting already in place. That's why it takes so long. Uh, it's not just for refugees, but also it's very difficult to get visas uh, from these countries and from many countries around the world. Uh, and that may be part of why we see so little violence uh, among uh, Muslims in the U.S., uh, it's very hard to get here already. So this idea that the, that somehow the vetting is going to be stepped up even more, we're talking about reducing a rate of some sort of fraction of fraction of 1% uh, down to even further. Uh, hard to imagine that that's going to be worth the dollars, the expense, and as you say, uh, the hostility and animosity that it might generate out there. Um, on the other hand, I think there are some people saying, well, what did you expect? This was one of the major tenets of his campaign. I mean, he's, he said all along he was going to do something like that uh, when he talked about it, specifically a Muslim ban. As Chris Murphy was saying a few minutes ago, there were an awful lot of Republicans who said, we can't do that. I mean, you can't just ban people based on, uh, on their religion. Even major Republican leaders said that. But he hasn't really ever significantly backed off that. He might have tempered it here and there when it was getting him in a lot of hot water or causing a slight uh, downturn in his polls. Uh, you followed this campaign. I assume what happened this weekend isn't tremendously surprising to you. No, I've been writing about this for a year now. Uh, the uh, rhetoric we've seen uh, suggests that unlike uh, President Bush after 9-11, uh, Donald Trump did not feel during his campaign that he needed Muslim allies, uh, and he was willing uh, to say outrageous things that were clearly not going to make him any friends in the war on terror uh, or in American business interests overseas either. Um, this has continued uh, throughout the, the past year and a half, and it plays into uh, this unfortunate polarization that we see in survey data uh, where attitudes towards Muslims have become quite polarized. So the people who self-identify as liberal or as Democrat uh, are actually uh, quite positive in these surveys uh, and their attitudes towards Muslims. But self-identified Republicans and conservatives have become uh, quite hostile. Uh, the two right after 9-11, when George Bush, you may remember, went to a mosque, uh, spoke with Muslim leaders, said, we're not at war with Islam, uh, we need Muslim allies. Uh, at that time, uh, self-identified conservatives and liberals had very similar views and very similar attitudes towards Muslims. And now we've seen a huge breach, uh, polarization in those attitudes. I think uh, it, it is repairing that polarization and restoring, uh, how to say, our, our common humanity uh, that, that I think is one of the number one tasks uh, facing all of us. There's a kind of fetishization of certain groups of people that Trump was able to achieve rhetorically during the campaign season. Mexicans were a problem, so now we have to build a $20 billion wall. And, and, and Muslims were a problem. I think probably a lot of people would be very astonished to hear the statistic that you cited at the beginning of our conversation. You say, well, actually, say that one again for me. It, it's how many murders and, and, and then how many of them actually have something to do with uh, uh, Islamic domestic terrorism here in the U.S.? Yeah, so uh, the, the total number of murders since 9-11, this comes from the FBI's Uniform Crime Reports data, which is online, is uh, approximately 240,000 murders. Over that same period, uh, I count 123 fatalities from Muslim American extremists. And of those, uh, 49 were in a single incident, a single person. That's the fellow Omar Mateen who killed so many people uh, at the nightclub in Orlando last year. In other words, you're far more likely to be killed by a huge number of other 
unusual things uh, than you are uh, uh, by a terrorist in the United States. So, I mean, if you wanted to save a, a lot of American lives, if your goal as a president or any other kind of leader was to uh, keep people uh, from dying, people who are at risk from a certain kind of death, obviously it doesn't make any sense to go after the group of people who killed 123 out of 240,000 uh, Americans. It doesn't make any sense. I assume the reason that we're doing that, as, opposing, as opposed to trying to figure out what, who or what does, in a very preventable and unnecessary way, kill gross numbers uh, of U.S. citizens is because this is, this is easy or it's frameable or it's, uh, it fits into some kind of um, uh, American psychological desire for there to be uh, a group of people who can be stopped or controlled and thus make us safe. I think there's a narrative here, uh, fear. Uh, there certainly are Islamic revolutionary movements around the world. Uh, they capture their, some of them are horribly gory, uh, and, and they captured our attention in this era of instant global news, and they use that instant global news to try to terrify us. Let's be clear about that. Uh, this narrative, it seems we've latched onto it, is very hard to, to go of, I think. I want to add, so in addition to the 123 fatalities, uh, there have been a number of plots that were disrupted, mm -hmm. and we need to give law enforcement credit for that. But the numbers are also much smaller than we thought they would be after 9-11. So it's approximately two dozen individuals each year uh, uh, get arrested for involvement in violent extremism. Uh, there was a bit of a spike uh, in late 2014 and early 2015 that is a couple of years ago when the Islamic State suddenly had a bunch of recruits, about a, uh, potentially over 100. Uh, those numbers went back down and we're back at a more normal rate. Uh, but those rates are still uh, quite small. Uh, and at the same time, we have over 6,000 FBI agents devoted to counterterrorism. Uh, last year, they made about 36 arrests. Uh, the, the ratio of our attention to this particular form of violence versus the broader scope of violence that we see out there, it seems disproportionate. And I would love to see evidence and brought back into this debate, as in so many public debates and public policymaking. Um, Charles Kurzman, in addition to your book, The Missing Martyrs, Why There Are So Few Muslim, Muslim Terrorists, um, are there places, pe people who might have been listening to this conversation and who are engaged in the largely fruitless business of trying to persuade other people on social media, which goes on all day long, uh, might be interested in having some of the facts that you just laid out here. Maybe they couldn't scribble them down fast enough or they're driving or whatever. Is there a place that they can go and get some of the data set that you're talking about? Yes, I post the data set. It's an Excel spreadsheet. It's on my website, kurzman.unc.edu. Happy for anybody to go look at it and fact check me. If I've made any mistakes, please write to me and let me know. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to update it. I think this is a, yet another incident, an instance of a policy field where evidence needs to be brought to bear. We can't just go to these alternative facts and imagine that things are going to end well. Oh, why start now? Uh, Charles Kurzman, uh, it's so great to talk to you. That's K-U-R-Z-M-A-N, if you want to go to that um, aforementioned site and see some more of this data. Uh, thanks so much for introducing some facts and some sanity into this conversation. Uh, we're going to take a break right now. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to Philip Rucker from the White House uh, Bureau of the Washington Post about some of the other things that went on while you were getting very upset about these things that were going on. <laughs>
We're moving fast here today. We have a lot of ground to cover, and producer Betsy Kaplan has done a marvelous job of orchestrating this show. You've just heard from U.S. Senator Chris Murphy and then Professor Charles Kurzman, who actually studies uh, who commits what acts of terror and how big uh, domestic terror actually is in the overall picture of violence and mayhem in this country. The answer, it turns out, is not very big at all. Uh, But one of the things we've learned to do uh, with the Trump administration, even in its very, very early days, is um, look at what's in the center ring under the spotlight, but also look at other things that are going on. They tend to run a lot of different circus acts all at once. Joining us is Philip Rucker, White House Bureau Chief at the Washington Post. Uh, He's been keeping an eye on some of the other stuff that's been happening while you've been demonstrating at airports, um, and we're going to talk about that right now. Welcome back to our show, Philip Rucker. Hey, I'm glad to be here. So um, one thing that we know was that is that Donald Trump had a lengthy uh, one-hour phone conversation with Vladimir Putin over the weekend. Um, uh, How much do we know about what was in that conversation? Well, we know a fair amount, um, in part because the the Kremlin provided a fairly robust accounting of what was discussed in the phone call. Uh, They did talk for about an hour. Trump was in the Oval Office for the call. And uh, they talked about a number of contentious issues, including the conflict in Syria, uh, the crisis over Ukraine, and they agreed to try to forge a partnership on defeating uh, terrorism, especially the Islamic State, but other terrorist groups as well. Uh, Both sides, the White House and the Kremlin, indicated that this was a positive phone call and what they hope will be the beginning of a fruitful uh, partnership, if not alliance, between these two leaders. Uh, one way that it could be tremendously fruitful uh, on the Russian side would be the lifting of sanctions. Uh, I, 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 that hasn't happened. Do we have any sense of how close to being on the table that was? Well, it was not discussed in the call, according to uh, according to sources. But that's not to say that Trump is not considering uh, possibly lifting those sanctions at some point. It's something that uh, you know we keep hearing uh, is somewhat on the table in the White House, although Trump himself said on Friday of last week that that it would be premature to discuss that uh, with President Putin. You know, I think he's holding on to it perhaps as a bargaining chip, um, perhaps because they're just not sort of ready to make that move yet. But I know that uh, his Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, in his previous job as the head of ExxonMobil, did advocate for lifting those sanctions. And uh, it's something that would not surprise me if that were to come to the the forefront of the president's agenda soon. Yeah, but I think there's also a question about whether he has enough uh, political gas to lift that balloon right now. I mean, I was surprised to hear Mitch McConnell, who hasn't really raised his voice much to object to many of the extreme measures taken over the last eight or nine days, say that he certainly would be opposed to lifting sanctions, that the aggression which occasioned the sanctions had not been undone, uh, to which uh, he would add the uh, now known meddling by Russian intelligence in in an American domestic election. Uh, he wasn't in favor of lifting sanctions, and if anything, he'd like to add more sanctions. I assume ha- having Mitch McConnell, not that Trump listens to Congress that much, but, I mean, there's only so much political capital you have. That was a pretty forceful rejection of that notion by McConnell, who typically hasn't been that forceful so far. It sure was. Uh, it was striking, and it, and it really warned, I think, the Trump, uh, the Trump White House to be careful and cautious as they proceed with this issue. You know, I think the first thing they want to do is make sure they get all of their cabinet nominees uh, confirmed through the Senate. So far, they only have a handful. Many more are waiting, including the attorney general, the secretary of state, the secretary of treasury. These are critical uh, positions that Trump wants to fill as soon as possible. He's also got a Supreme Court pick 
coming up. So the last thing he wants to do is, is take an action such as lifting the sanctions that would provoke uh, Mitch McConnell and re the other Republican senators to seek some sort of retaliation in the form of holding up his nominees. Um, uh, let's skip around here. There's a, a couple of more. We're saving the, quote, best one for last. But uh, the, the other thing that we know happened this weekend is that Trump ordered the Pentagon uh, to begin devising a strategy that's right. to go after ISIS. Um, uh, that's something that uh, Mattis was already probably working on. But what do we know <laughs> about what happened over the weekend? You know, the, the ISIS strategy is somewhat um, symbolic. I mean, it, it, it showed that the president wants to follow through with his plan. Uh, or his campaign promise, rather, to have a plan to defeat uh, and, and get rid of ISIS once and for all. And, you know, he's instructed the Pentagon to do that. Uh, it, it, you're, of course, right. The Pentagon, of course, is developing a plan on their own, regardless of whether there's a presidential memorandum ordering them to do it. But nonetheless, it sends a signal, I think, to, to the American people that the, this is top of mind for the president and that he wants sort of immediate action and wants to be able to show that he's going to be more aggressive in uh, in combating terrorism abroad. I mean, what would seem to be dangled, I mean, once again, we don't know everything, but what seemed to be dangled would be maybe American advisors in more forward positions. I mean, every time you hear about something like that, antennae go up. I mean, it sounds more and more like boots on the ground. It sounds more and more like maybe some kind of ground engagement involving American forces, which is uh, it actually runs a little contrary to some of the things Trump said over the campaign. Yeah, you know, I think that's right. It's a complicated issue, obviously, and uh, and Trump is new to this. And so he's expecting Mattis and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and other members of his uh, national security team uh, to put together a plan that, that gives him specific uh, actionable items that he can follow through on. I mean, he wants to crush ISIS. He made a big point in the campaign about how he thought President Obama was too weak in taking on ISIS and in dealing with this terror threat. And so Trump wants to step it up and, and put his foot on the gas and see what happens. All right. Last thing that we were saving here, um, and that is the National Security Council, Steve Bannon, uh, who is a counsel uh, to uh, to Donald Trump, has been added to the National Security Council. A number of people who typically are on the Security Council uh, are not on the Security Council. Um, maybe just first of all, just quickly tell us what the National Security Council is and why it matters who's on it. Well, it's a big deal. Uh, the National Security Council is inside the White House, and it is the team of the senior most advisors on national security issues who advise and counsel the president on everything pertaining to national security. Uh, this is the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State. The uh, Secretary of Treasury actually is in this role as well because there's a Treasury component to a lot of these concerns. And the National Security Advisor, who in this case is Michael Flynn, is the person who chairs uh, the council. Now, the change that that Trump put forward over the weekend in the form of a presidential memorandum elevates his chief strategist, Steve Bannon, who's his political advisor, to a permanent seat on the principles committee of the National Security Council. That means he's on par with the secretaries of defense and state and treasury and, and the chief of staff and a national security advisor in playing a role, having a seat at the table in our national security decisions. That is a big departure. The Political advisors in previous White Houses did not have that level of access to national security. I'm talking about people like Karl Rove under George W. Bush and David Axelrod under Barack Obama. And so it's significant. The other thing he did is he uh, seems to effectively demote 
the Director of National Intelligence and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Both of those positions had a permanent seat on that National Security Council Principles Committee. Now they're only allowed to be in that meeting if they're invited. If it's an issue on the table that they have direct involvement with, they'll get invited to attend. But otherwise, they're not welcome to be there. So it's a big change, elevating the political guy and demoting the intelligence and military people. Also elevating somebody who hasn't gone through Senate confirmation and demoting people who have. Um, but very, very quickly, I mean, I don't want you to uh, go out on a limb with something that hasn't been confirmed. But there was I've seen some reporting suggesting that some of this might arise from dissatisfaction with General Flynn, that, that in general he had managed to fall uh, in step very well with what they're trying to do at the Trump White House. Uh, they got tired of waiting for him and gave Bannon more power. You know, I, I think that's uh, partly true. I, I do. Uh, one thing about Steve Bannon is he, at this moment, is the closest to President Trump. He is fully trusted by Trump. He has direct access to Trump. And he's playing an extraordinarily powerful role in shaping all of the policies, foreign and domestic. Uh, he's not the operator that Reince Priebus is in terms of hiring a bunch of his allies and stacking the White House with people. But Steve Bannon is a singular power in, in this White House right now. That could change a month from now, but but as of today, it, Bannon is in control. Philip Rucker, you are a singular power of journalism uh, on today's show. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, White House Thank you very Bureau much. Chief at The Washington Post. Philip Rucker, uh, lucky to get him, lucky to have him out there reporting uh, on stuff like this. We'll take a break. We're going to talk very specifically about the refugee part of this uh, problem and maybe a little bit more about the consequences in real lives of the immigration part of this puzzle. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Ali Oshinsky. The part of Bill Curry was played by Phil Collins. All of our past episodes can be found at wnpr.org slash Colin. And on tomorrow's show, the sorry story of eugenics. And now, back to Colin. Uh, for the final segment here today, we are going to talk uh, about both the refugee consequences of uh, this somewhat rash move made over the weekend and also uh, uh, about the immigration consequences of it. Um, both groups are affected in, in a way they're kind of lumped in, in a way that uh, seems like kind of a blunt instrument as opposed to um, to a... Uh, to, a, to a scalpel, the kind of scalpel that you want to use with this. I mean, one way to put the refugee crisis uh, in, uh, um, in, in some kind of perspective uh, is um, that there are 25 million, I believe, refugees now, maybe more than there have ever been in history. Um, and um, about 5 million of those are coming from Syria, uh, which is a very dangerous place to be right now. So they're affected by all this. Uh, we're going to talk to a couple of different guests here. Um, I'm uh, trying to see exactly who's up there on the board. I'm a, I'm a little bit confused. Uh, so I'm going to go to line uh, two here. And uh, who's on this line? Is this Amin or yes. Chris? This is Amin. All right. Yes. So Amin Karbasi is joining us, Assistant Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at Yale University, uh, currently on sabbatical at, at the University of California in Berkeley. Uh, first of all, thank you for taking some time to be with us today. Obviously, um, you are very caught up right now in the human consequences of this. It's one thing for us to be talking in abstractions about numbers and policies. This is affecting your family. Explain how it's affecting your family. 
so basically, uh, uh, about a month ago, uh, my wife and uh, my newborn daughter, we all went to Iran to visit her, uh, the family for the first time. And, uh, and uh, about two weeks ago, I had to come back because I was starting my sabbatical at UC Berkeley. And uh, they stayed in Iran to enjoy a little bit more, you know, the family time. And the plan was that uh, I would go back here um, uh, for the Persian New Year and celebrate the New Year in Iran. And then we would, you know, all come back to the U.S. Uh, so at this point now, uh, uh, you know, it is uh, completely unclear whether or not we can do this. I, uh, my wife and I are both um, uh, uh, green card holder, holders, and uh, my uh, my daughter is actually a U.S. citizen. Uh, so for now, it is not clear whether she can she can leave Iran and come to the U.S. and uh, I cannot leave the U.S. because I may be barred from reentering. So um, uh, it's, a, it's a very delicate situation for us. Yes, very you're, frustrating. You're, you're sounding more calm about it than I would be uh, if I were in your circumstances. So who who do you turn to in a situation like that? This who's who's able either to give you advice or possibly intervene uh, in your behalf? So I'm talking to a, a couple of lawyers. Uh, so there are some people at Yale that are helping uh, and. Um, uh, and we are just looking at the news. It's uh, uh, it's basically it is just not clear. So mm-hmm. no one can give us any direct answer. The, you know the uh, the kind of suggestions that we get is that you know make sure that there is a lawyer uh, uh, who knows your flight number and who is on ground, so that when you land, um, uh, they know that you're landing and they are in the airport to make sure that you know you can actually get out. Right. And, but to do that, I mean, for example, to send your wife and newborn back to the U.S. under those circumstances, it's still a roll of the dice. There's so little exactly. clarity so, on the green card part of this that you, you your wife and daughter could be, uh, they could be held on the ground in the country of origin or they could be stopped in some kind of holding facility uh, at, at whatever airport they landed in in the United States, right? You just don't know. I just don't know. And that is basically, I, I you know, we... We talked about the possibility of them flying now, but then, uh, you know, it's 24 hours of flight and, you know, with, uh, with a newborn on your lap. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when you get here, you may or may not be allowed to enter. And uh, so uh, it, it would be extremely difficult to, you know, to play this game. Um, I don't want to uh, ratchet up your anxieties even more, but I, I, are your wife and newborn child basically pretty safe as far as you know where they are right now in, yeah in they're with the family they're you know they're a strong uh, family support in iran they're they're safe and they're healthy and uh, and you know in, in, from that perspective uh, you know there is uh, there is no problem uh what is problematic is that um uh i cannot leave and they cannot leave mm. and uh, we are like thousands of miles away from each other well, first of all, I hope that you will um, keep us posted on this situation, or we will try to be kept posted on this situation. You should know that uh, you have a, a tremendous amount of sympathy uh, coming from uh, a lot of Americans, and I'm sure also a lot of Iranians. I hope this thing gets resolved. It's it's crazy that you have to go through it. Uh, it's horrifying that you have to go through this, uh, and I hope you can get some clarity on this soon. Yeah, me, me too. Uh, but uh, I just have to add that, uh, you know, our situation might, might be resolved because we are 
permanent resident. Mm. Uh, but this is more than that, right? This is, uh, uh, I cannot just say that, okay, my problem is, uh, is solved, so uh, I'm fine. Right. Uh, it's, um, um, uh, you know, just uh, preventing people with valid visas mm-hmm. uh, not to come. You know, there are a lot of people trapped in the, in the airports. It's, uh, it's just, uh, it's very bothering. Right. Yeah. There are there are worse situations unfolding right now. Um, I mean, Karbasi, thank you so much for talking to us right now. We're going to talk about some of these worst situations right now with Chris George. Chris George, executive director of the Integrated Refugee and Immigrant Services, better known as IRIS, uh, based in New Haven. Um, so, uh, Chris George, let's maybe just sort of get some facts out here about refugees before we talk about how this uh, order affects them. You, know, you may or may not have heard me say earlier to Charles Kurzman, my understanding of U.S. refugee policy, it's, it's the strictest, most severe, and most watertight refugee process in the world, right? It's 12 to 18 months. It's vetting by multiple homeland security agencies. There's biometric testing. I mean, this, this is a very rigorous process even before any kind of executive order goes into effect. It is. You're right. I mean, anyone who's come through the refugee resettlement program has gone through a series of, of of interviews, which really feel like interrogations. And as you say, you know, fingerprinting, uh, biometrics. Um, the information is run across all sorts of databases, terrorist watch lists. And if there's ever any question or doubt about the accuracy or honesty of of these, you know, refugee candidate. Uh, questions or, or their answers, then they're just off the list, and thousands of people have been screened out. So we don't take chances. So it's already the most rigorous screening process in the world. It's the hardest way for anyone outside the country to enter the United States. And, you know, we're all kind of scratching our heads saying, so, you know, where is where where are the weaknesses? Where are the gaps? Has anyone come through who should not have come, you know, Uh, And who is it? And where do they come from? And why did they slip through? No one has been able to say anything that specifically identifies why it is less than rigorous, less than extreme. In terms of numbers, I know it's very hard to get a handle on this right now, uh, but in terms of people that maybe you anticipated coming into Connecticut who aren't going to be able to get in now, do you have any sense? Do you have a, a sense of how big the picture is? Well, you know, Last year, 2016, Connecticut welcomed more than than 900 refugees. That was a big jump from our average of around 550 a year. And if the the cut that President Trump has proposed or ordered, really, from 110,000 to to 50,000, that's more than 50 percent. If that cut is kind of shared proportionally across the country, then Connecticut's numbers will probably drop to under 500. Our numbers, Iris, based in New Haven, we welcomed 530 refugees last year because Connecticut was so generous, so welcoming, so much wanted to participate in refugee resettlement. Our numbers will drop from, from 500 to you know 250. So it'll be drastic. Um, now, um Obviously, I, I don't know the numbers that I have, and they may be. I'm sure you have more sophisticated numbers, but the numbers I threw out at the beginning of this segment, you know, roughly 25 million refugees in the world. That's refugees fleeing violent places, basically, um, and the the largest number uh, we've ever had in any time in world history. Um, maybe about five million com- of them coming out uh, of Syria. Um, 
that means that there are other places. Africa probably has more actual refugees in it than, than anywhere else. One possibility, it's kind of a cynical one, is for an organization like yours to begin concentrating on people who aren't on that list of seven targeted countries. How do you feel about that? Well, we don't feel great about that. And what the State Department um, might do is to um, scramble their resources and um, go to those countries, send State Department, Department of Homeland Security people to those countries that are not on that list of seven, and ramp up the refugee resettlement processing in those places. I mean, refugees are refugees. Persecuted people are, are persecuted people. Um, um, so in a certain sense, Colin, you know, it doesn't make that much difference. A human being is a human being. But this country has always strived to have a diverse caseload of refugees that we resettle from all over the world, some from Africa, you know, some from the Middle East. We, we, we try to go where the need is greatest, where refugees are in really dire straits, like Syrian refugees. And it would look odd, it would feel strange if we were not responding to the needs of the largest refugee resettlement community, which is Syrians, who are in the most precarious position. You know, you say that we do have sort of a proud history um, uh, in the U.S., except when we don't. I mean, obviously, I don't know, I was rereading the letter Einstein wrote to Eleanor Roosevelt in 1941, begging her to beg her husband uh, to open the gates to more European refugees from fascism. And we know how that went. Uh, not so great. And, and the reality is, you know, poor countries take most of the refugees. Something like 85 percent of the world's refugees uh, get resettled into poor countries, not highly developed countries uh, like the United States. So, I mean, as proud as our our history might be, uh, it's, you know, we haven't done everything that we could do. I mean, even the numbers that you quoted, 900 for the state, I mean, I guess that's good. It's not good in terms of the size of the problem, 900 out of 5 million or 25 million. Yeah, I mean, look, Connecticut has has stepped forward and increased its numbers, but you're right. We could be resettling many more in the state. The country as a whole should be resettling, you know, 200, 300,000. Um, we we can do much more, and um, you know even though historically we've resettled many more refugees um, than other countries really put together, um, that's that's nothing that we can be totally proud about because given our resources and our size, we can really do much more. Uh, Chris George, last question. We're running out of time, but I do want to bring this up. So you have, on the other hand, heroically and effectively resettled a, a lot of people, uh, including a, a lot of people from Syria in this country, at a time when the president really is, let's be honest, exploiting, as Charles Kurzman said earlier, Islamophobia uh, as, as a way uh, of calling attention to uh, his supposed efficacy here. What does this do to these populations who came here seeking safety? Do they feel more imperiled now that this particular kind of toxic spotlight is on them? They are worried. They see these um, executive orders as an indication that maybe the mood in this country, certainly in the government, is, is, is shifting. Uh, they came here for safety and for opportunities, for, you know, to, to share in our democracy and freedoms. And now they're wondering, you know, whether they're, they're, they're welcomed or they're looking over their shoulders. We're reassuring them. That um, the um, that Washington is out of step uh, with the population, certainly here in Connecticut, 
our feeling is that if people are educated and understand the refugee crisis, know how the refugee process works, understand the rigorous vetting process, and have even met or helped or worked with refugees, they will be supportive. If polls show that you know 40% of Americans uh, you know, are in favor of these executive orders, 40% of Americans who are not informed about the realities. Right. So we're going to stop there with Chris George, Executive Director of IRIS in New Haven. That's Integrated Refugee and Immigrant Services. Yeah, I just want to drive this point home one more time today. You know, this notion that, that there's any danger from this population is insane. It's crazy talk. If you have an apartment open downstairs or above you, you should hope Syrian refugees move in. They will be the safest bunch of people that you could get. The other people just have to get through a credit check. These people have to get through 18 months of investigation by every Homeland Security Agency imaginable. You should pray you get Syrian refugees as your neighbor. Uh, and listen very much to Charles Kurzman's words, words of caution, too. 123 murders out of the last 240,000 since 9-11 have anything to do with Muslim immigrants in this country. So, uh, you know, you're being sold a false terror. I hope that's come through. I hope our irritation about this has come through as well. We'll be back tomorrow with a show about eugenics, another thing to be appalled by. Take it away. Watch me.